Good morning, everybody. I love to see how friendly we all are. So many new faces here. My name is Liz. I am one of the pastors here at Hope. Yes. This is going to be our way of, um, if you ever want to say amen or like, come on, that's so good, just, you know, blow the blower. There you go. Okay. Who let this guy in the building? My name is Liz. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope, and I am super excited. I was in tears watching that. I love the way that our kids are being shaped and formed by God here in our church family, and they are so important, so much so, that we are going to talk about today what Jesus has to say about children. Only fitting, right? And so if you've been with us last year, we were journeying through a series called Luke, Jesus for Everyone. And in the next two weeks, we're going to be back in this series looking at some of the things that Jesus had to say and some of the miracles that he performed. So this morning in particular, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about children. And if you follow along in your Bible or on your phone, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 this morning. And so if you want to flip there or turn there, feel free to jump ahead. And this week, if you want to stay on course with us, I challenge you guys to maybe read a chapter of Luke or a little bit more than a chapter a day. So by the time we get here next Sunday, we're going to be back in Luke chapter 9, and you will get caught up to where we are in the book. So easy. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Jesus, thank you for everyone who has made it into this room this morning. May they, Jesus, know your love for them, your delight in them, that they have permission and freedom to come to be with you like a child. May we receive that invitation this morning through these words and through your holy scripture. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so to give you guys a little bit of context, the book of Luke is one of four gospels in the Bible, which you heard Julietta say, the gospel. I was like, ooh, what does she mean by that? I'm going to ask her later. In one of the four gospels, it was written by a man named Luke. And he himself was not an eyewitness to Jesus, but he took very seriously collecting and writing down reports from the actual eyewitnesses that saw Jesus live in action. And he wrote Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. They're frequently called to or referred to together as Luke-Acts. And Luke himself was also a doctor of this time. And his main and primary purpose of writing these books was so that we would believe what the Bible says is true and that we would see it as the fulfillment of God's plan for all of humanity. And so Luke, as he's writing, has these particularly... Uh, 
extreme focuses and emphasis according to him rather than some of the other gospels. And the reason why we call this series Luke Jesus for Everyone is because that is one of his emphasis, is that in the book of Luke, you see that he welcomes all people. That This is not an exclusive kingdom that Jesus has come to pronounce, but that it's this inclusive kingdom that all people are welcome and that salvation could be for all people. It's really good news. I don't know if you've ever felt unseen or rejected or misunderstood or fill in the blank, but Luke's desire as you read this gospel is that if you felt that way, that you would see the way that Jesus includes all these types of people, that there's no outcasts in his kingdom. The second emphasis that we've seen in Luke is a bunch of miracles and healings happen And I think this is because Luke is a doctor. He's trying to make sense of how science and medicine of the day really couldn't solve all these ailments and diseases and things that were happening. And he wanted to put down, I testify, I am a doctor, and this impossible thing happened. And it was by the power of Jesus alone. The third emphasis that we see, and we're, we're going to examine a little bit more today, is this group of people that we refer to as the disciples. This was Jesus' main followers, his crew, his posse, okay? And these guys were a bunch of imperfect people. We have any perfect people in the room? Perfect? Oh, there's no perfect people allowed, so please. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> But the disciples were these imperfect people that were just figuring out how to follow Jesus. And then we see in the book of Acts that they are the very people that God chooses to have his story and his message taken to the entire world. Imperfect people. That's really good news for us, right? Really good news for us. I'm comforted by these things. I'm comforted that I belong. I'm comforted that Jesus has the power to do the impossible, and I'm comforted that he chooses imperfect people. And so today, we're going to look at chapter 9, which is the closing of part 2 of Luke. Okay, so Luke is split into four parts. We don't have to go into depth about all of that this morning, but part two we see start in chapter three, and we've used this verse as a centering verse a lot, and so I want to read it out loud for everyone this morning to get our hearts set right, and it's out of Luke chapter four, 18 through 19, and it says this. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads this off of a scroll out of the book of Isaiah when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, right as he was going to begin to do his ministry. He was about to launch this like public ministry and all these things were going to start happening. And this was his pronouncement. This was what he was going to be all about. To proclaim good news to the poor, to set the oppressed free. And we've used this in this series as a centering verse. And if you want to go back and listen to some of our sermons online just to get caught up, feel free to do that. Because Doug does a really good job breaking this down uh, for us in several sermons. 
And this sets the stage for what we're going to see today. What we're going to see today in chapter 9 is the disciples finally getting a shot at this. Up until this point in Luke, they've been simply observers, learners, and now we're going to see Jesus say, it's your turn, you got this. And guess what? They fail. We're in good company. But here in Luke 9, we're going to see that they're activated on ministry. And I want to pause before we jump in because this is the same call to discipleship that each of us in this room that says we are a follower of Christ has. Jesus first invites us to come and to be with him. Jesus first invites us to come and to see, to come and sit, to come and learn. And then the byproduct of that will be mission and activation for his kingdom. And we see the disciples walking in this after a period of sitting and learning from Jesus. And I think that that's what I hope to say. You know, we, we, we showed a slide about Serve Saturday, an opportunity for all of us to show up on a Saturday and serve together. I'm so excited about that. But that is an and to formation, and there's lots of opportunities of things that we provide here through classes and small groups, but I hope that you guys are also taking seriously coming and seeing and being invited to sit with Jesus from Monday through Saturday and not just on Sunday morning. So we see that formation and mission fuel each other. I had a mentor say this, and I thought it was so good. They said this, spiritual formation is moving from in the world for God to in God for the world. Mission is moving from God has a mission for his church to God has a church for his mission. And this captures what we desire here at Hope, to become people in God for the world and a church for his mission. So for today's text in chapter 9, we're going to see this launching of the disciples into mission and their failure quite a bit. And we're going to actually zoom to the end of the chapter again because of children's baptisms. I had to talk about kids, right? We had to go there. So if you open up to chapter 9, some context of what has already happened in this chapter is Jesus has sent his 12 disciples out. They've been told that they have all power and all authority to heal people, to drive out demons, to go from village to village and proclaim the good news. And they come back and they report to Jesus, hey, this is what we saw. Hey, this is what happened. And then they're met by this massive crowd of people who are hungry but the disciples were also sent out without any food or without any money. So how were they going to feed all these people who were hungry? And the book of John actually says there was a little boy in the crowd that had a basket of some fish and some loaves. And the little boy brought this basket. And Jesus multiplied this basket and was able to feed thousands of people. And we're going to talk about that miracle next week. So come back, hang out with me. And as this is happening, this miracle is happening, the disciples still struggle a little bit with some belief that could this actually happen. And, and then this crazy thing happens. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up to the mountainside. 
and there's this great cloud that encapsulates Jesus. And this guy, Moses and Elijah, show up, and they hear audibly the voice of God say that this is my son who I have chosen. So they have this amazing mountaintop experience where you experience God. Anyone have a mountaintop experience where they've experienced God before? And then they return right back down to reality in the valley. And they're met by where our story picks up today. A dad who has a son who's demonically possessed. And the disciples have been trying and trying and trying to rebuke this impure spirit out of this kid. And they couldn't. And so the dad comes up to Jesus and he says, I begged your disciples to drive it out and they could not. And Jesus then heals this little boy, drives out the impure spirit, and gives him back to his dad. And scripture says, everyone was amazed by the greatness of God. And then we read Luke 9, 43 through 48 together. Luke 9, 43 through 48. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, He said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. In this text, we see Jesus for the second time prophesy to his disciples his death. And they don't understand. And not only do they not understand, but in the midst of saying, I don't know, and not understanding and comprehending, they then say in verse 45, they're afraid to ask a clarifying question of what he meant. I don't know if you've ever uh, not understood something and been intimidated to ask. I've been there. I feel for the disciples. I want to act like I know it all. I don't. And so they're afraid to ask, and, and I think it was hard for them to comprehend what Jesus was saying. One, because here's this man who's amazing, who is coming as the fulfillment of all these things that they had learned and studied, and they couldn't picture what life would be like without him. They couldn't picture, he's really going to be betrayed? He's really going to leave us? That's hard to imagine the people that you see as your hero, that you see as the fulfillment of what the story of God was all about to now be gone. So I'm right there with them, not understanding, not knowing, and they're afraid to ask. And because they're afraid to ask, they go quickly instead into a silly argument. (laughs) Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? well, I, you know, healed this guy, or I did this. And they start going back and forth and having this argument with one another. And instead of Jesus getting frustrated with them, he provides an object lesson. He grabs a little child, who some scholars say could have been the little boy he just healed, 
and he tucks him to his hip, and he says, okay, you guys are arguing about that. He's the greatest. This little child is the greatest. He says exactly like this on the screen for you. It says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's completely undermining everything that the Roman world at that time would have been about. Any status, any social relationships. You see, back then, to welcome people would be to extend to them the honor of hospitality and to regard them as guests. But you wouldn't do that or dare do that with someone who is of a lower social status than you. You would only do that to someone who is an equal to you or somebody who had maybe higher status than you. And unfortunately, back then, children would have been the lowest on the ladder of esteem especially in their residence. When they would have people over, children would often be called to be the ones to wash the guests' feet. They would have never been the ones to receive honor in the midst of adults. So here again is another example of the way that Jesus takes this social pyramid and flips it upside down. We use that term a lot, upside down. This is a primary example of Jesus flipping things upside down, the kingdom upside down, and blowing away any definition that the disciples were just coming up with of who was going to be the greatest. And then he goes as far enough to say that when you welcome this child, you welcome me too. In order to welcome a child back then, you had to have a lot of humility. He's saying in order to be great in the kingdom, you have to have a lot of humility. And one of my favorite things about the Gospels is that you can compare and contrast between all the Gospels, the different stories. And Matthew and Mark and uh, Luke are the synoptic Gospels, and they all talk about kids twice. And I want us to look at two of the passages. In Mark, we see similar language to that of Luke. It says this. It says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom belongs to such as these. And then in Matthew 18, he says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This morning, after witnessing these baptisms, I'm particularly struck by Matthew 18's direct words, unless you change and become like little children, unless I change and become like Julietta, unless I change and become like Elijah, what is it about children? Why are they the greatest? Well, the humility of children, as highlighted by Jesus, involves qualities such as innocence and trust and lack of pretense. 
Children are often open-minded and trusting and willing to learn without arrogance or a sense of superiority. Their humility is reflected in their simplicity. Elijah said, love, simplicity. Genuine curiosity in the absence of desire for recognition or status. Jesus used the humility of children as an example to convey the essential qualities for entering the kingdom of God. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to explore four qualities. Again, I could have chosen a ton. But we're going to just look at four qualities that I've identified in children that I want us to consider today of how we might be able to become like children because they are the greatest in the kingdom. So the first quality is simple faith. Simple faith. Kids have an amazing uh, way of embracing faith in Jesus that is contagious and simple. Did you hear it today? Even just the yes. Everyone was like, oh. Simple. Simple. And I wonder... If there's anyone in the room who's ever felt like this before. I'm familiar with the things of God, but I no longer feel close with God. Or maybe you find yourself often thinking and saying, I know that already. Or, I did that already. I studied that already. This is nothing new. This is the type of language that can actually be diagnostic language for us to look inside our heart and go, man, there might be a potential hardening happening in there. G.K. Chesterton says this, and I love this quote. It's one of my favorite, favorite quotes. He says this, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every morning, do it again to the moon. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. He has the eternal appetite of infancy. Our father is younger than we. I have to admit, I have failed at this. There's definitely been moments of my journey of following Christ where I have thought that more head knowledge means more love for Jesus. That's just not the case. That's just not the case. I've noticed the ways that sometimes I've thought if I do for God, kind of this transactional relationship with God, that I can earn more love or I can show him more love instead of this transformational relationship with God of just being with him. I'm thankful That in those seasons, God has used through the Holy Spirit people's voices or scripture in the Bible, even dreams, to convict me of that type of thinking 
in that type of behavior. I remember I was in college, and I was really struggling in this season with understanding that God was a loving father. I don't know if you've ever struggled to picture a kind and loving father in God. That was me. I was having a lot of trouble doing that. Especially looking at God as a God who is not always upset with me. Does anyone else? Okay, no, don't raise your hand. But I have frequently felt that God is always upset with me, okay? If you want to confess that, you could do that later. I'm not going to put you on blast here. (laughs) And in college, I was so thankful. There was one night that I woke up and I had this dream. And it was so vivid and it had to be from God. And in this dream... I was a little kid, and I was sitting at a dinner table. And I was sitting at the dinner table, and I remember I was just crippled with fear. And I had all this fear inside of me. And I was waiting for my dad to come home from work to scold me and to tell me all the things I had done wrong that day, tell me how bad I had been. And then in my dream, there's almost this like panoramic, like whoosh, swish, like a 180. And I was no longer at the dinner table, but I was standing outside on the lawn in the grass waiting for my dad to get home. And my dad pulls up into the driveway, and the sprinklers in our front yard shoot off, and I start taking off those sprinklers. Have you ever seen a kid in sprinklers before? They are smiling, right? And I start taking off in the sprinklers, and my dad is in his suit and tie with all his blueprints, and he just throws it all down and comes and runs with me. I looked up some pictures to try to capture this moment. I call them a sprinkler moment, but take a look at some of these photos. And I love imagining this. We often grow old and have dinner table faith instead of sprinkler moment faith. Believing that God is a God who wants to delight in us and to join us in the front yard running through the sprinklers. Have you had a sprinkler moment lately? Would you notice one? This is simple faith. The second thing that I've noticed in kids is curiosity and wonder. Curiosity and wonder. Did you know on average children ask 250 questions a day? You know. My son's not talking yet, but I have steps, or I have not stepsons, godsons, and they say, why, why, why? And it's, you know, within a couple seconds, 30 questions alone. They ask 250 questions a day. Adults, anyone have any guesses? How many questions a day do we ask? Any guesses? Five, 10, okay, 20. 20. We ask a fraction of the same amount of questions that kids ask. You might have heard this before, but Jesus asks quite a bit of questions. Throughout his Gospels, he is recorded of asking 307 questions, and he himself is asked 183, and he's only, he only answers three of them. He, and we can go over that in a whole other story. It's very fascinating, the questions he chooses to answer. But I wonder if you've ever felt like this before. I wonder if you've caught yourself listening to respond and not to actually understand. 
You've heard the seeking first to understand, then to be understood principle before. Do you find yourself answering way more questions than you might ask questions? These might be signs of a hardening of your heart towards curiosity and wonder. And what's so beautiful about children is that they just naturally do this. And if we can become like children, what would this do for the ways in which we see God and we interact as a community with one another? For example, on Thursday, there was a group of kids with a couple of moms who were here at church playing in our back ditch. Ditch. We call it the ditch. And I asked the kids, where are you guys going? What are you guys doing? They're like, into the woods. And they played battle on the hill, and they decorated a tree, and they made houses with twigs. They had no toys back there in our ditch. And to them, for three hours, they played imagination and full of wonder in the woods. It was so cool to see and to witness. And I said, how do we get postured in a way that we can see the world not just as a ditch, but in the woods? In the woods. One of the ways we're actually going to have a practical way of doing this is in a couple of weeks, we, during the Lent season, are actually going to do a six-week class called Engaging Scripture Class. This is not a Bible study where we will be providing answers. This instead is going to be a way for six weeks that we're going to open up Scripture together and we're going to provide you tools and resources for how to look at Scripture through different ways and different mediums. And hopefully by the end of the class, you'll have a bunch of tools in your toolbox that you can continue to do on your own. And so we're going to do it first here for six weeks of Lent uh, as a community and opening scripture together. And I'm so excited to do that. I think signups for that start next week. So join me uh, through Lent season if that is something that you would like to participate in. The third thing that I've seen in children is forgiveness. Forgiveness. They're so quick to forgive, right? You can go from a toddler hitting another toddler, tattletailing on them to their mom, and then next thing you know, you turn around, they're running off playing together again. They do not hold grudges like we do. Did you know that this type of forgiveness is the same type of forgiveness that we have access through a relationship with Jesus? Jesus accepts us just as we are. In the midst of our fighting and in our hitting, his love is constant. His forgiveness is always available. Whether we fail or whether we flourish or whether we succeed or whether we struggle, Jesus' grace offers us second chances over and over and over and over and over again. I find a lot of hope in how Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. May it wash over us in a way that allows us to be quick to forgive like you. 
the last, and I can invite the worship team to come up, the last characteristic of children is trust and surrender. You've seen this. Kids jumping off ledges and chairs into a carrying adult's arms. They know that that adult is going to catch them, and they just freely throw themselves. They have so much trust naturally in their caregivers. And I think what happens in life is that in life, bumps and bruises happen. And uh, we become people who, instead of being trust freely given, like children, we become people like trust has to be earned kind of people. I have definitely fallen to that. But I find a lot of good news when I think about, okay, God. If trust and surrender is the key component or a key component to childlike faith, can that be restored? Can that be healed? Can I be a trust-freely given person again? Could I take back some of these wounds and bruises of life? I mean, you all demonstrated a bunch of trust this morning. You all sat down in those chairs. You didn't flip them over. You didn't double-check them. You didn't make sure all the screws were in. I think we demonstrate more trust freely given than we give ourselves credit to. And I wonder what it would look like if we t- noticed those things and took those things as a community to the world around us. Brennan Manon says it like this. He says, childlike surrender and trust, I believe, is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. Childlike. Not just surrender and trust. Childlike surrender and trust, the jump off the ledge freely kind of childlike surrender and trust. And there's an invitation here for us to approach God with this type of childlike surrender and trust. What would that look like for you this morning? What do you need to trust God for and maybe surrender to God with childlike faith? Perhaps you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you've noticed the hardening of your heart towards simple faith, towards curiosity and wonder. Maybe this is your first time back in church for a while and just hearing the comfort of Jesus' forgiveness and love for you is an invitation for you to come home to him, even today. So I don't know where each of you are at this morning. Um, Jesus knows exactly where you're at. It's a good news. But I want you to hear, you don't have to sit at the dinner table anymore. You can greet and be greeted by Jesus in the front yard with the sprinkler moment in life. He delights in you. And my prayer for our church family is that we would continue to be shaped and formed into children and not grow older than God. Like G.K. Chesterton said. And then, when we have opportunities to welcome children, like we did today. Or welcome those maybe starting their faith journey with childlike faith. We would do so like what Jesus did. We would pull those people in closer. We would put them on our hip. We would put them in a place of honor in our community. We wouldn't overlook them or dismiss them. 
My prayer is that the culture that we create here at Hope would be one that is so contagious to the world around us because of our simple faith, because of our quickness to forgive, because of our curiosity and wonder. And I think that that would invite a lot of people alone to trust and surrender to Jesus, don't you think? Could we create this community together? Where would we start? I think we're already doing it. And I think every new person that walks in the door is another addition to, this, uh, to the ingredients of this recipe that we've had in the making of this type of community. My hope is that we would continue to live and be formed and on mission together in this way. We can become like children together, for they are the greatest in the kingdom. Amen? <laughs> yes. Amen. <laughs> Let's worship. <laughs>